So I know it's only 9 a.m., but are you buzzed? Me? Well, not currently. Why? Well, you know, today we're talking with an entomologist, so a bee guy. Buzzed. I know what an entomologist is. Did you? <laughs> not until today. Learn something new every day on this podcast. So our guest today is Jonathan Lundgren. He's a South Dakota farmer who has a whole bunch of stuff on his farms, from bees to pigs, sheep, and chicken. He's also a scientist who used to work for the USDA, and now he's combining science and farming on his farm. We should probably introduce ourselves first. Oh, yes. I am Tara Vanderdusen, and we dairy farm in New Mexico. And I am Zach Johnson. I farm in West Central Minnesota, not too far actually from South Dakota, where Jonathan's at. Today, we'd like to thank the Walton Family Foundation for sponsoring this show this season. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Now let's jump right into our conversation here with Jonathan Lundgren. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, how are you guys doing? I'm doing excellent. It's probably a lot colder here than it is where Tara's sitting. It's really cold here this week as well. Not as cold as Minnesota, but relative to New Mexico, it's cold. I did see uh, they had some snow down there in West Texas. Did you guys get any snow? We did. We got about maybe like a quarter of an inch. And so, you know, we closed schools, obviously, and shut down completely. So (laughs) (laughs) everything is halted. (laughs) Yes. Jonathan, tell us about your farm. It sounds like from what I understand, you have combined a fully functional farm with nonprofit research. Tell us about that. How exactly does that work? So it's kind of two sides of a coin. Uh, You have Ecdysis Foundation, which is the science side. And this is the headquarters for the Ecdysis Foundation. And it is housed at Blue Dasher Farm, which is an operating regenerative farm here in eastern South Dakota. And that pairing is really important, right? Because it means that the scientists have to be exposed and have to practice as farmers. And what an important thing that is. I love that initiative, you know, your boots on the ground for researchers. I have worked in environmental consulting for the last 10 years. And whenever we hired a new consultant, like fresh out of college, the first thing I wanted to do was get them on the farm, boots on the ground, because everything they learned in school was going to be completely different on the farm. Yep. So why do you think that's important? Well, I think that there's a growing disconnect between what scientists are doing and um, how they're addressing their questions and then what's important to the people that are on the ground and actually trying to implement this stuff. So from a scientist's perspective, I get to wear both hats, right? And so from a scientist's perspective, it's like, okay, here's a problem and you have to understand the mechanisms that are driving that problem. And if we study it this way and that way, we can really start to knit this down into what's going on. Whereas as a farmer, it's like, oh crap, the sheep just got out. I got to go, you know, and I don't have a time to figure out all of those mechanisms. It's like, I just got to make this problem go away and move on to the next one. Two very different perspectives, but until you experience both as a scientist, I think you're missing out. What are some of the challenges you've encountered making, you know, that transition of being a researcher to a farmer, like combining those two roles? Uh, How to keep all the balls in the air. I think that's a big one. There's no two days that are the same. I was used to, when I worked at USDA, I was able to have like a schedule, right? (laughs) And I used to be able to, oh, I'm going to do this, this, and this today. 
And then, you know, somebody shows up because we, I mean, people from all over the world come to Blue Dasher Farm just to see something they've never seen before. Or, you know, something's going on with the livestock or the tractors broke or something. So usually by about 9 a.m., any plans that I might have laid have been vaporized and we're just shooting from the hip the rest of the day. What? No, things go perfectly smooth on farms, right? Yeah, right. What about you, Zach? Everything goes smooth on your farm, huh? Yeah, I had to laugh when he said that last sentence there. That is life for me. Like you wake up with a plan. I've got everything on my list. I make a lot of lists of things that I need to get done. Uh And then at the end of the day, it's usually just the same list still sitting there. Yep. Yep. It's very frustrating. But, I, you know, I've always said when you're talking about like the science versus the farming there and combining those two, I've always thought that farming is part science and part art. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to it that you just have to weed through as you go. You can't just say this is what this is, and this is how it works. You know, X, Y, Z lines up perfectly, and that's how it is. It just isn't like that for any farm that I've ever known. Right. You know, what an accurate statement that is. Brilliant. You know, if you're farming well, you're some of the best naturalists that I've ever met. And that observation of what's happening on your farm, that is the basis of science. And right now, science is being generated willy-nilly in agriculture, solving all of farmers' problems, but it's being done behind a computer desk. And that lack of connection is leading to a chasm between what's going on in the science realm and what's going on on the farm and what farmers really need. So we were trying to make science part of food communities again. And that's been a really important component of what it is that we do. We no longer dictate what you should be doing on your farm. We actually go to farms, some of the most progressive regenerative farmers across the U.S. and Canada, and we just observe and document what the farmers are actually doing out there. And based on that, we can turn anecdote into empiricism, right? We could say, you know, this isn't just your farm, what you're seeing out there. This is real. This is replicable. Everybody should be able to expect similar results. So you talked about visiting some of the regenerative farms. Mm. Is that what you guys concentrate on on your farm? Is that a focus of yours? Yeah, we have a regenerative operation. You know, what is regenerative, right? We could call it any one of a number of things, but essentially focusing on soil health, life conserving and promoting life on your farm and balance of life. That's one of the most important outputs of a farm. Nutritious food profitably. Those four outputs, in our opinion, is what a regenerative farm is really doing out there. And there's a lot of ways to skin a cat and the practices can vary depending on whether you're a dairy farmer in New Mexico or a cash grain systems in Minnesota. The practices are going to vary, but the principles are always there. And that's what unifies regenerative agriculture at this point. That's so well said, because I feel like it's really hard to explain sometimes, you know, regenerative practices or sustainable practices is because it looks so different on the farm and what your priorities are. Like, obviously, we have very little water in New Mexico. I loved your four points that like that doesn't change. Those priorities don't change no matter what practices you're doing or what resource concerns you have. I think so. There's some unifying things, but it's a little bit abstract, right? Especially from a scientific perspective, every component of that system is supposed to be kept solid. And that's why we had to change the way that we're doing science is to be able to capture what is so special about all these farms all over the country. So what is it that you do differently on your farm there? What do you grow and and what is your main focus? Um, Some of our main outputs would be honey. We have 200 beehives. 
We have lamb for our local community, poultry, eggs, turkeys. We have young orchard that we're getting up and off of the ground. And then we have the next generation of scientists as one of our crops. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to put it. I like that. That's cool. So you mentioned lamb for your community. You said specifically, so are you direct to consumer or how? Yeah, that's kind of our scale. I mean, we're on 53 acres and some folks come and they say, oh, that's a hobby farm. Or they say, we can't relate to that because we're at a different scale. And we have a couple of things that we can say to that. And the number one thing is, you know, this is the growth area of farming right now is small farmers. I mean, if you were to try and get you know, 400 acres and you didn't have land in the family. I mean, how on earth are you going to be able to afford that? And so there's a lot of young farmers or new farmers rather that are getting in at 100 acres or less. And they need to figure out how do you get a business plan together that can make that work? And what does that business plan look like for you? How do you follow through on like direct consumer sales? Like how are you finding those customers? Like what is that, you know, how does creating that business? You know, I came in, I wasn't a farmer, right? I wasn't a beekeeper. I wasn't a rancher when I started this. I was giving advice to them. I had never walked a mile in their shoes. What a difference that is. So I had a brilliant business plan, right? Year one, I was going to make, oh my God, I'm going to make so much money, (laughs) right? Year three, we're in the black. And I'm pretty happy with that. You know, that's true of many small businesses. And so setting your expectations correctly, I think, is step one. And having a plan so that you can understand where your revenue streams are coming in. Stacking enterprises, right? If we have a crop failure in one of our crop fields, then how often can you have a crop failure and still make money? Well, every single time when you're farming regenerative. That's the answer. And the reason is because you're taking multiple revenue streams off of a piece of ground. So if we have a crop failure, we have native species that are in association with that crop, flowering species. So we're still pulling honey off of that piece of ground. We're still getting the sheep out there and taking grazing days off of that piece of ground so that every element of the farm is in balance and it's all productive in some way. That's an interesting statement there. So do you have any examples of when you've had crop failures and still been able to maintain a profit on those acres or with that crop or maybe with that livestock? Yeah, absolutely. Every year. That's farming, right? It was so, so dry this year. The spigots turned off in April, I think, and it didn't turn on until mid-August, late August this year. I think we had less than two inches of rain on this farm. And we watched the storms go north, and we watched the storms go south, and it missed us every time. So a lot of the ranchers in the area, I mean, they were out of forage, right? But we kept wetlands in the system. And those wetlands saved our asses this year because it was the only green place on the farm and we could graze all year long as a result of that. So pretty important. Also, you know, we're also doing crazy things, right? So we're trying to make mistakes so other people don't have to, right? One of the systems that we're really working hard on is trying to marry annual cropping systems like feed for our pork and for our chickens. We're trying to grow that on farm. And so we're trying to seed this in directly into standing warm season grasses without using herbicides and without using tillage in order to maintain those native species low. And so our tools are fire and grazing and plant competition. 
And this year, we really struggled with that system. But those native warm season grasses were there. And so we were able to graze them all season long. So our annual crops didn't really get going. And we ended up having to get some feed in for the livestock. But as a result of that, we had forage for our sheep all year long. And the bees made boku honey for some reason. So you've mentioned, you know, a couple of times that you're researching things, you're looking at things. So you have the 1000 Farms Initiative. Can you share a little bit more about that and what that looks like? We've all heard the statement, oh, we're losing topsoil at at an alarming rate. We've got 50 or 60 years of topsoil left. I'm a biologist by training. At current extinction rates on the planet, we have about 50 years of life on Earth left. The majority of life will be extinct if we don't do something. That means we have to make major changes, and we need to make them soon. That requires not just incremental steps, right? That requires bold action. And that is what we are trying to do with Thousand Farms Initiative. We're trying to fill a major, major data gap where people are able to dismiss regenerative systems at this point because they're anecdotes, right? That may work on your farm, but it'll never work on my farm. It's too hot, too dry, too wet, too cold. May work there, never here. We need data desperately right now in order to influence both farm management decisions as well as policies. And so what we're doing is full systems assessments across the United States on a thousand farms a year over the next several years, answering very simple questions. Does regenerative work, no matter what you grow or where you grow it? How are farmers making this leap into regenerative? Can we provide empirical roadmaps in order to get you there without a lot of hardship? And number three, does regenerative deliver on these promises? Can it be used to reverse climate change? Can it be used to reverse desertification? Can it be used to improve rural communities again? So we're terrified and excited all at the same time. This is a pretty ambitious effort. Where are these farms located right now and how many do you have signed up so far? We just launched our recruitment right now. Our focal systems are from Michigan West. And by 2023, we're hoping to be across the U.S. There is a hunger for this right now. And we're working with major food distributors and aggregators in order to try to get their supply chains in there, as well as just really stellar regenerative farms. We're trying to get those in as well. How did you go about selecting these farms? Like, what was your criteria? So, number one, they got to register. I mean, if we, if we don't know they exist, then we can't study them. We divided the country into different eco-regions, more or less, kind of partitioned the country up a little bit. That helps us to focus. And then we look at dominant food systems within those different areas. So things like in the Midwest or in Minnesota, we'll be exploring things like pastured dairy and cash grain systems and rangeland systems, grazing systems, maybe sugar beets. We'll see. Whereas in California, we'll be working on strawberries, rangelands, almonds, vineyards, and tomatoes. Pacific Northwest, apples, cherries, cash grain, rangelands. So how do you go about collecting the data? (laughs) We deploy teams from home base. Yeah, if you drive by, we have about way too many minivans sitting in our (laughs) 
parking lot and we load our staff up and we send them off because they're doing the actual data collection at this point. So yeah, we deploy to these different areas. We're trying to collect at sort of key periods during the cropping or rangeland systems and or dairy systems, depending on whatever we're studying, right? How do you like differentiate between the different farms of what their practices are like as far as, you know, if one farm is just starting out and is in that transition period, maybe to regenerative versus another farm that maybe has been practicing no-till or minimal till for years? How do you differentiate the data in that way? What an important question that is. And that kind of gets to the root of a really central issue we're facing in regenerative ag. About every couple of weeks, there's a new certification program or verification program or labeling program. And they're all interested in putting a stamp on regenerative versus conventional, and none of them have any data. So we were confronted with this. It doesn't work. You know, any of these things work in terms of delivering regenerative outcomes. And so we were faced with this early on, and we came up with a matrix, a very simple matrix, where we ask you nine to 10 yes or no questions about your operation. In rangelands, it's four questions. And based on your responses, it takes literally two minutes. We're able to put farmers along a spectrum. We've tested this. It cost us about a million bucks, but we tested it in rangelands, corn, and almonds. And this thing is actually pretty predictive of what sorts of outcomes you might be expecting in terms of promotional life, economics, soil quality, and soil health. So it's a really useful tool. We are going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be back after just a bit. Welcome back to Fieldwork. I'm Tara Vanderdusen, and due to some technical difficulties, this next part of our conversation with Jonathan Lundgren sounds a little different, but I think you can still make out what he's saying. For this part of our chat, I began by asking Jonathan how he's funding his research and how does this work with the farm? So it costs us 7,500 bucks a field to sample these things. These are the best studied farms like ever. We're really looking at the full system here, but we're trying to keep it free for farmers. And so we're asking for sponsors and things like this and then partners. We've spent a long time developing, automating, standardizing the data collection to keep it as cheap as possible. And as a result of that, we're getting interest from various philanthropic organizations Farmers themselves are sponsoring operations. We're really interested in making sure that underrepresented groups are associated with this because I think there's a lot to learn there. And so, yeah, and then corporate sponsors as well. What have you been able to learn so far? And is there anything big that really stands out to you? Any big surprises that jump out that you've learned and been able to say, whoa, this is not what we expected? Number one thing is how consistent the economics have been. When we look at this, whether you're looking at corn in the Midwest or almonds in the Central Valley, the profitability on average seems to be about double for regenerative versus conventional farms. And that's important, right? That makes it a good business decision to be considering this. The other interesting thing is that after a while, they end up falling into two categories. You don't live in the middle by dipping your toe into a regenerative system, you don't survive for very long. Either you have to go back to being conventional. You can't just adopt 
one or two practices. You either have to go back to being conventional or you have to start to accumulate additional regenerative practices within your operation. So from what you've seen or from what you've experienced, what is the timeline like when somebody goes from a conventional operation to where you would consider them to be in that regenerative space? So these are really difficult studies to perform, right? It takes multiple years, multiple operations. We just finished one such study up in working with General Mills Supply Chain up in Canada. And we studied this three years going, 60 farms as they were transitioning to regenerative. And I was staggered at how quickly things had changed on these operations. So we looked at, just as one example, insect predation, right? And this is how pests are regulated on farms, is how many predators you have out there, things like ants and beetles, spiders and stuff like that. Year one, 25% of the caterpillars that we had out there were pretty poor. Year two, 50%. Whoa, it doubled in one year. Year three, 75% of these caterpillars were eaten within one hour. At that point, I mean, probably by the end of the first year of transition, you don't need insecticides anymore. That's powerful information there. Was that consistent across, did you say 60 farms? Well, in that case, we were studying 12 of the focal farms, but we looked at the full inventory on all 60 farms. But yes, that was consistent. That was with error bars and means and and p-values and all of that kind of stuff. So that's exactly what we were hoping to see. What would you say the success rate is, meaning how many of these farms that transitioned have stayed with the regenerative processes? Oh, that's a good question. All of them have at this point. They have a nested market with General Mills in this case. And so there's a real incentive. And there is some education component of it as well. Long term, what will happen? It's really hard to say. In almonds, we're doing another transition study. And a couple of the larger almond producers out there, the big players out there, They said they were going to transition and they haven't done it yet. So we drop them from the study and focus on the people that are really willing to transition. We'll see. We'll see how that all looks. But yeah, we're excited for it. So looking to the future, I have two questions for you. One from a farmer side and one from like a science side, I guess. From a scientific side, like, do you see this, you know, doing a peer-reviewed study or something of the Canada farms? And from a farmer side, how do you get this information? Like Zach's face, I feel like said it all that he was like, wow, that's really powerful information. How do you get that out to farmers? So on both those sides, how do you get the information to the scientist and to the farmers? We have multiple audiences for our information, and we have different platforms for reaching them. So yes, peer-reviewed science is still important for what we do. And so we are publishing all of this work in open access sources. So everybody can access the science that we are producing. It's all on our social media and websites. So go to ecdices.bio or bluedasher.farm, and you can see all those things. How do you change behavior? We're not a data-driven society. I wish we were. As a scientist, that's pretty humbling. It takes more than just doing the science. The science is necessary. The data's got to be there. But we need more than that in order to make this go. How do you communicate these things? Well, I think that the answer is relationships. And that's one of the reasons why we put Blue Dasher Farm where it is is because we need to be integrating science back into food communities and starting those relationships with the farming. I think that is a really important point because I I feel like farmers often 
change practices when they've talked with their neighbors, when they've seen other people do things. Like, you know, you can publish a white paper or peer-reviewed scientific study, but a farmer wants to talk to another farmer. You know, it's that disconnect there that we talked about. And so I think that is really what's going to help, I think, move the needle with farmers is talking to other farmers in their areas. And so having farms across the country is obviously going to be really powerful, I would guess, moving forward in your research. That's one of the things we talked about a lot in uh, season three of this podcast was the networking power when it comes to farming and learning new practices. And like you said, Tara, it's so much more comfortable as a farmer personally to know that my neighbor made something work or that they're trying something versus, you know, like you say, reading about it somewhere online just because somebody in Arkansas made this thing work. You know, they could be doing something completely different from what I am. Perhaps the science is the same. I don't know, but being able to really relate it to your own community and your own crops and your own geography, there's a lot of power there in being able to actually speak face-to-face with somebody that's been through something that you're trying to do, right? And maybe they've already learned from some of the difficulties and the challenges that they've had. Jonathan, is there any? are there any specific farmer stories that really stand out to you? We were out in Albans and we had shown, you know, from a pest perspective, we showed one of our conventional almond producers the pest data, and he looked at it, and they were exactly the same, right? There was no difference between the regenerative and the conventional. And he said, I don't believe it. I did everything right. I followed the university's best management practices, the almond board best management practices. And last year, I sprayed five times for insect pests. I spent tens of thousands of dollars on insecticide. And what you're telling me is that the guys right across the road who didn't spray at all had the exact same number of pests. And I just can't believe that. But that farmer changed 160 acres of his orchard, which in California, if you don't know, I mean, it's like 25,000 an acre or something crazy like this, to regenerative this year. And now we're studying his transition over to a regenerative system. And that is the power of science, right? It wasn't just his neighbor. It was all of the regenerative farms saw the same response. I can really picture that when you say that he told you directly that he didn't believe it. I can picture that because I don't know what it's like where Tara farms, but here, you know, we've got sales guys coming from tons of different companies, whether it's seed companies or chemical companies or companies that want you to spray this fufu juice, we call it, you know, spray this in season and you're going to get 20 more bushels to the acre. And here's the data. And it's always three bushels. Yes, but if you use 10 of those products, you should have 30 bushels more, right? <laughs> I, had a, I had a great story about that. One of my friends on Twitter, he's like, I am a farmer or whatever. And I did the math on this. And if I used all of the products and took all of the yield gains that they were telling me, I should have 800 bushel corn this year. <laughs> I was like, oh, it doesn't work that way, does it? On the dairy side, my father-in-law has a similar joke that he says for every pound of milk that these salesmen say they are going to get, like he's like, gosh, my cow should be producing 150 pounds of milk every single day on average. And I think that's probably some of what you're up against there, particularly when you talked about the last farmer that didn't believe it. And he had his neighbor right there saying, hey, this is what it is. And I can relate to that in saying it's not always easy to try to convince a farmer that something's going to work. And I think a lot of the time it's because we've experienced that, where things that are promised to work, they don't necessarily work. And if those salesmen were actually produce data, which I seldom see, right? I seldom see. But if they were actually to produce data, I think that that would help 
So my notes here say that you are a pest expert. What does that entail? I don't know about being an expert, but I know I'm a pest. <laughs> You're an expert at being a pest, just like so many of us are. Well, I'm an entomologist by training originally. Entomologist means studying insects, and that's kind of what my bread and butter was for a long time. But what was different is that we started to think about where insects fit rather than just focusing on one component. Like it's uh, whack-a-mole farming is what a friend of mine, Wade Beck, likes to say every once in a while, where you hit down one problem and two more pop up. And so you're like, oh, okay, oh, I got to hit this one down now. And that's what pest management kind of has become. And so you have to start thinking about pests, insect pests, in context with the whole system. And what we found actually drives insect pests is whether you have a lot of other insects in your cornfields or in your other crop fields or in your pastures. And the more other diversity and insect species that you have out there, the fewer pests you have. And so we're actually, by removing insects from our food system, we're causing our own demise with insect pests. What are you working on right now? Like, what are you most excited about in this pest control area? Showing how soil health is actually one of the drivers behind insect pest problems. It's pretty interesting. You know, it's kind of abstract, isn't it? You don't think, okay, soil organic matter is a key element in pest management because Right. It's hard to see those connections, but it is. And so showing those patterns and how that system is driving so many of these, you know, offshoots of an agricultural system is pretty interesting right now. Oh, another really cool thing is since opening our doors, we've identified the species level 800,000 insects from all over the United States and Canada. And so we've got a really nice collection here at Blue Dasher Farm. It's hard to do that. And so we're developing artificial intelligence to recognize insects for us. So we're training machine learning. And so we should be able to send out, send a sweep net out to a bunch of farmers. They can take their sweeps and then take a photo of it. And my hope is that we'll be able to identify those things with our machine learning. That'll really open up a lot of opportunities. Okay. You just mentioned machine learning and AI. You mentioned roughly 50 years left of life on Earth. So I was thinking maybe they would send like some cybernetic organisms in to save us. If you're a, a fan of the Terminator series at all. <laughs> Is there a way we can somehow save ourselves using the AI that will machine learn these insects to save the world? No, absolutely not. So misuse of technology is probably how we've landed in the boat that we're in right now. And so you're not going to solve the problem using the same solution that generated it. I think the only answer for us moving forward is to reconnect ourselves to the land. And as an example, me and one of my scientists, Mike Bredesen, were driving along. We stopped the vehicle and he pointed at a soybean field. And he said that field was tilled. It was sprayed with herbicide. It was then planted and sprayed with insecticide and fungicide when you did that. And then they hosted it again with another herbicide application. And then they flew on some insecticide and fungicide. And then they harvested it, tilled it again, put another herbicide application. Human feet have not touched that piece of ground. When people ask me, if you had a magic genie or whatever, you know, that could save the planet or whatever, but what is it? And it is 
having everybody take their shoes off and walking through prairie or a desert or a crop field or a rangeland and feeling it and smelling it and touching it and having it become a part of you again. That is what farming is. We can't lose that. I have a a question sort of along those lines. You talked a lot about herbicide and controlling the pests. What are your thoughts on using things like BT corn instead of using a spray on, instead of spraying on the protein, we're using the BT technology within the seed? Yeah, so risk assessment of genetically modified crops and insecticides was one of my main research focuses for a long time. I was an advisor for the EPA and the European Food Safety Authority on a federal level. And I don't get into the weeds on sorry for the pun. The weeds on it. The fact of the matter is farmers don't need this. And why on earth would you spend so much money on something you don't need? When you could be using things like cover crops that grow soil health and improve the resilience of your operation. Plus, it gives you another grazing opportunity if you've got animals or your neighbors do. And when you do that, you don't need to spend all the money on trades. That was one of the ways the regenerative corn farmers were so much more profitable. I mean, it's $300, $350 a bag for this corn seed, for crying out loud. And it didn't produce any more yield. These farmers were spending $100, $150 a bag and making just as much. That I do believe. Yeah, it's crazy. There's a lot of money being made off of farming right now. It ain't by the farmers. That's a powerful statement there, too. (laughs) That's a whole show in and of itself. That was a good one. (laughs) So your opinion here, Jonathan, can we feed the world this way? If everybody moves to regenerative, can the whole world operate this way? Yeah, yields really aren't reduced. It's just the resilience and the profitability that's increased. Yep, without a doubt, we will feed the world. That's really the only way that we will feed the world. How do we get the rest of the world on board? I mean, we can work on fixing our problems right here at home, but how do we get the rest of that map behind you right there on board with this? Yeah, you know, change starts small. And that's what Ignatius likes to say is, we're the pebble that starts the avalanche. And that's how every avalanche starts. So we really need people to change their own lives. And that's where this all begins. How do you scale it up? Well, we're thinking pretty hard about that. And we need to scale it up quickly, don't we? So we are doing that at a pretty rapid clip with our science and communication. And there's so much momentum. I mean, criminy, six years ago, where were we? I mean, regenerative wasn't a thing. It was a fringe, right? It was crazy, wacko stuff. And now you've got a radio program that's devoted to some of these ideas, right? That probably wouldn't have happened so many years ago. So we're a part of a real sea change that's going on right now. One time I polled my audience about regenerative ag, and one of the questions I got was how, you know, it was a consumer that said, how do we support regenerative ag? You mentioned labeling at the very beginning of this conversation. Everyone's trying to stamp a label on something. I think part of moving the needle is consumer understanding of their products. How do you do that without, like, slapping a label on everything and making, you know, everyone be afraid of labeling or confused about labeling? What does that look like as far as outreach to consumers, do you think? Yeah, it's a real problem right now. The whole concept of regenerative shares a lot of the same philosophies of early organic. We need to be very careful in how we proceed with this. At the end of the day, the only incorruptible system is knowing your farmer. And that relationship has to be restored. And I understand we've got urban centers with millions of people, and not every one of them can know their farmer. 
But maybe that's an opportunity for some food distributors or aggregators in order to step in and fulfill that role. And they can know their farmers on behalf of their customers. And those relationships, that's central to everything. Relationships, a common theme, I feel like we've talked about at least a couple of times in this episode. Yeah, for sure. So to end this conversation, I would love to know what you think about how we can get farmers to make changes, what that change looks like into the future. I get this question a lot. I give a lot of presentations to growers. At the end, you know, it's like, okay, this is wonderful. Everything you're saying sounds so great, John, but I am invested in this current system. What's it going to cost me? What's it going to cost me to change? And I think that that's the wrong question. And that extends to so many elements of society, not just farmers. What's it going to cost you not to change? It's going to cost you your farm. It's going to cost you your grandkids. Is that worth it? I think that we're at a place now where there's sufficient information that could really help a lot of people. And regenerative is a win-win. And the time for change is now. Well said. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, if people wanted to learn more about Blue Dasher Farms and your foundation, where where should they go? Where can they find you? The Adisis website. So E-C-D-Y-S-I-S dot bio. That's a good one for information. Blue Dasher Farm, which is pretty easy to spell. And then Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, those kinds of things. Yeah, consider sponsoring some farms for this Follows and Farm initiative if this is of interest to you. This research doesn't happen on its own. And just as a last thing, ecdysis means shedding the old skin. It's a geeky entomology term again for metamorphosis. So it felt like that was appropriate for what we were trying to do. I love that. That's awesome. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate you being on and sharing with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. I thought there was a lot of really interesting conversation there, a lot of powerful stuff there that he was talking about. Yeah, a lot of food for thought, you know, really making you think about what the future looks like, how to get people involved in this, just how to collect the data on so many levels. There were so many things we touched on that were just really powerful pieces of information. I know as a farmer, we talk about this kind of stuff a lot, and we've been trying some different stuff on our farm, but Man, some of it can be so overwhelming. So knowing where to turn, where to go and what to try first, a lot of the time is the big question, at least in my mind anyway. So I'll, I will definitely be looking into this Thousand Farms Initiative thing and seeing more about what they uh, what they do and what they're all about. Yeah, same for us. You know, sometimes, you know, your system is just in place, the entire system, the network of all the farms, your custom harvesters, everything. And then you throw, you know, an idea out there to change something and everyone just, you know, is kind of like wide eyed, like, oh, gosh, that really throws a wrench in things. And so it's interesting to think about how you implement that change and having that 1000 Farms initiative to be able to understand how other farms are doing it. Absolutely. Well said. That's going to do it again for Fieldwork Today. Our show is produced by Todd Melby with lots of great help from Anna Canny. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media and Lauren Humpert is our project coordinator. Thanks to all the technical directors at American Public Media who help us record and mix the show. Be sure to check us out on social media. We are at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels and we'd love it if you wrote us a review so that other people can be helped to find us. And don't forget that we like hearing from you. So give us a call with your comments or your questions at 651 651- Two two eight four eight one zero. That's six five one two two eight 
4810. Thanks again, everybody, for listening. And until next time, don't soil yourselves. Don't soil yourselves.